Hello, this is Shirley Comer from Nursing 330 at Governor State University, and this is our lecture on the neuro assessing the neurological system. Some of the relevant history that you want to uh, ask about during your review of systems um, are headaches, and if they do have them, you want to note the location, the duration, and the frequency. You want to ask about any weakness or incoordination, uh, any history of head injuries, dizziness, seizures, syncope, any tremors, any numbness or tingling, any difficulty swallowing, difficulty speaking, or any past history of neurological disorders. We've talked a little bit about the cranial nerves when we talked about assessing the uh, head and the neck. I introduced them to you then because you really learned several of the techniques for assessing the cranial nerves during that assessment, even though they weren't labeled as cranial nerve assessment. Um, but now you'll be responsible for knowing each of the cranial nerves, each all 12 of them, knowing their name, their number, and how you would assess for them. Cranial nerves are always identified by Roman numerals. Now this slide uses um, um, the English numbering system just because I didn't have enough room when I used the Roman numerals, but they are always identified by Roman numerals. This slide gives you a photograph, um, give an idea of uh, where the cranial nerves uh, originate from and what each cranial nerve uh, uh, is responsible for innervating. You can see that number one is the olfactory nerve, um, number two is the optic nerve, three is the oculomotor, four is the trochlear, five is the trigeminal, six is the abducens, seven is the facial, eight is acoustic, nine is glossopharyngeal, ten is the vagus nerve, N eleven is the spinal accessory, and twelve is the hypoglossal. Any uh, neurological deficits in these areas may indicate a problem with a spinal nerve. So testing these cranial nerves, you test number one, the olfactory nerve, by asking the patient to close their eyes and testing whether they can identify a strongly smelling substance that should be uh, known to them already. Um, things like uh, uh, coffee grounds, um, um, peppermint, those types of things that have a strong smell uh, can be used be careful that you don't use anything that is caustic when it's inhaled, such as bleach or, or ammonia. Um, just use uh, a, a, common, um, uh, a common household op uh, item that uh, people should be familiar with the smell of. Um, the olfactory nerve is not um, routinely tested. Uh, during a physical assessment. However, if you do have uh, any suspicion that the patient might have uh, issues with their sense of smell or any type of other cranial nerve deficit, you certainly want to include this assessment in uh, your cranial nerve assessment. Two is the optic nerve, and you test this by testing visual fields. And remember that visual fields are tested by confrontation. If you forgot what confrontation means, please go back and listen to the lecture again on the eye and the ear. You use the ophthalmoscope uh, to examine the retina uh, for, to test the optic uh, nerve, and you also um, use that confrontation test. 
3, 4, and 6, the oculomotor, trochlear, and abducens, control uh, the pupil, uh, pupil size and uh, the movement of the eyes. So you would assess these by doing your PERLA examination, looking for the uh, round uh, uh, and reactivity and accommodation properties of the pupil. You also would assess extraocular eye movements using those six cardinal positions of gaze and noticing if there are if there's any nystagmus uh, or any ptosis, which is a dropping of the eyelid. If there's any problems with the eyelids, any problem with um, the eyes lagging behind each other during the six cardinal positions of gaze examination, then they may have a uh, alteration in those cranial nerves. The fifth cranial nerve is the trigeminal nerve, and as it indicates, it has three branches. Um, to test those, you would uh, ask the patient to clinch their teeth and test the strength of their uh, masticator muscles. Um, you should be, if you pull down on their jaw when they are clinching their teeth, you should not be able to open their mouth. They should be able to resist you. You want to test the sensory function by touching a cotton wisp to the face with the eyes closed and asking the patient to say now when it's felt or asking them to um, point to the place where they were where they were touched. Um, you can also check by doing the corneal reflex um, and to do this you would take a small piece of cotton and uh, gently touch it to the cornea and the person should reflexively blink uh, bilaterally as a result of that. For the uh, now, if someone has been used to wearing contacts though for a long time, that reflex might be diminished because they're used to touching their uh, their cornea. Uh, if, however, they're you know so if it's absent and they are contact wearers, it may not be as significant as uh, otherwise. The eighth cranial, I'm sorry, the seventh cranial nerve is the facial nerve. To test for this, you want to observe for facial symmetry. You want to ask the patient to smile, frown, close their eyes, lift their eyebrows, and puff out their cheeks. Um, if there's any asymmetry, then uh, the, fa the seventh facial um, cranial nerve may be uh, affected. The eighth is the acoustic. Uh, and you test this by doing the hearing acuity test, the Weber and the Rhine, as well as the whispered voice test, which we talked about earlier in our uh, eye and ear lecture. 9 and 10, the glossopharyngeal and the vagus. You test for them by using the tongue blade in the mouth and asking the patient to say ah and watching the uvula rise. The uvula rises when the patient says ah because the whole soft palate rises when they say ah. Um, but this is an indication that the glossopharyngeal and vagus nerves are intact. You also can test the gag reflex um, by advancing the tongue blade into farther into the back of the throat until you elicit it. Um, be careful about this. Don't don't jam the blade back there so far that they end up vomiting. Just you know until they get a little uncomfortable and then take the the blade out. Eleven is the spinal accessory nerve. You ask the patient to shrug their shoulders and turn their head against your resistance. They should be able to freely move their shoulders and their head and they should be strong enough to resist your trying to move um, move their head or their shoulders. Twelfth is the hypoglossal and to test this one you have them stick their tongue out um, and the tongue should remain midline with no deviations and there should be no tremors in the tongue. You want to test for cerebellar function uh, and for cerebellar function, you would test the gait because the cerebellum controls balance and coordination. 
So you would notice their gait. They should have a normal uh, gait with smooth arm swings um, opposite of the legs. Steps are usually about 15 inches apart, and they should lift their foot up off the floor um, when they move. As we get older, we tend to shuffle because folks are um, less able to determine where the floor is. So a lot of folks um, are afraid of falling. They will shuffle along instead of lifting their feet up. You also want to ask them to walk heel to toe. You can ask them to walk forward and backward on their balls of their feet or on the heels of their feet. Um, either uh, any of these test their um, cerebellar coordination um, and, and balance uh, as far as the gait. Um, to test balance, you also want to um, do a Romberg test. For a Romberg test, they, the, your book describes the Romberg in this chapter and also in the ear chapter because there is uh, there can be problems with uh, balance when, when someone has an inner ear issue. Um, but um, in this instance, we're checking for a neurological cause for ba balance problems. You have the patient stand with their feet together and the arms at their side and ask them to close their eyes. They may sway a bit, but they should be able to keep their upright position for at least 20 seconds. You want to make sure that you stand behind the patient, keeping your hand at the small of their back so that they don't fall over. And if they do start to fall, ask them to open their eyes right away. That should help right them. And um, grab them at the small of the back in order to, to keep them from falling over. You can also ask them to hop in place on one leg uh, or on both legs to demonstrate that they have normal strength and, and uh, balance. Uh, other things that you can do to check for balance and coordination include the rapid alternating movements tests. With this one, you can ask them to pat their, pat their knees with uh, their palms and then with the backs of their hand, and they should uh, be able to do that um, quickly uh, and the speed you ask them to increase the speed as they go and they should be able to do that quite quickly the hands should remain in sync in other words both backs of the hands should hit the knees at the same time both palms of the hands should hit the knees at the same time there should be no uh, disconnect between there you can ask them to do the finger to nose uh, finger to finger test where you have them touch your finger and then touch their nose and then change the position of your finger uh, out in space and ask them to touch your finger again and then touch their own nose. Um, this they do with their eyes open facing you and um, ask them to look at your nose while they're doing it um, and this helps test the uh, coordination of the upper extremities. You can also have them do the classic uh, drunk finger to nose test where you have them close their eyes uh, spread their arms uh, as far out as they can, and then with their eyes closed, they need to bring each alternating uh, index finger in to touch their nose and then to extend their arm back out again. Um, you can also have them do the heel-to-shin test. The heel-to-shin test is a good test to do for folks who can't stand um, and you are afraid uh, th you know, that they may fall if they stand. So if you want to check their cerebellar function while they're uh, supine, this is a good way to do it. What you do is you take the heel of your opposite um, foot and place it uh, up by your knee and run it down your shin. Um, they should be able to slide it down straight down the shin. Now this uh, assumes that the person has a, a relatively normal range of motion of the hips and the lower legs. If this isn't the case, that might be a little more difficult for them to perform the heel-to-shin test. So, so far in the neurological system, we've talked about assessing the cranial nerves 
and we've talked about assessing the cerebellar function of um, balance and coordination. Now we're going to talk about the sensory um, system of the neurological system. Um, and to test the sensory abilities, um, you want to apply these tests we're going to talk about over the entire body, the face, the trunk, the legs, the arms. So there are several tests that you can use. Um, one is a test for pain. And traditionally, they've used a, a pin prick to tell if a person can feel a sharp um, stimuli uh, on the body. Nowadays, though, we don't use pins. Um, we used to use safety pins. We don't do that anymore because it's dangerous. Um, so the video shows you using a fractured um, tongue blade where you would split it in half um, and use one end as the sharp end and one end as the dull end. This is perfectly acceptable. You can also use a, a cotton-tipped applicator with the stick end being the sharp end and the cotton end being the dull end. Now it's often beneficial to, with the patient having their eyes open, to let them know, you know, to push the dull side in, into one part of their skin and say this is this is dull and then turn it over and let them say feel this is sharp. In the old days when we used to use a pen and a cotton ball to do this there was a giant difference between a sharp pin and a soft cotton ball. But now that we're using either a tongue blade or a cotton tip applicator there isn't quite as a distinct a difference between the two. So you want to be sure that the patient really understands what you mean when you say sharp and dull. You want to do this uh, with the pa patient should have their eyes closed uh, when you're doing this and you should uh, ask them to either tell you um, where you where they've been touched or or to uh, point to it. Um, for the pain uh, thing, pain test, what you want to do is ask them with their eyes closed to tell you where they felt the touch and whether it was sharp or dull. With temperature, you only want to do this temperature test if the pain test is abnormal. This temperature test is a good way to test for peripheral neuro neuropathies because folks who have peripheral neuropathies often lose the ability to distinguish between hot and cold. It's not a very easy test to do though because you have to find, the, the way they tell you to do it is to find two test tubes. Put cold water in one test tube and hot water in the other test tube and to put those up against the patient's skin and ask them whether they're feeling hot or cold. The problem is, is that very seldom do they give you any parameters as to how hot or how cold the water should be. And there's also a possibility of getting the water too hot and burning the patient with the test tubes. So if you're going to do this, do it carefully. Make sure that you're using warm enough water that they should be able to tell the difference between that and the cold water. And if the cold water is cold enough that they should be able to tell the difference between that and just regular water. But not so cold or hot that it's going to damage their skin. The next you can do is the light touch uh, examination. And with this one you use a cotton wisp and you have the patient close their eyes and you touch them with the cotton and then ask them to either point to where they were touched or to tell you where they were touched. Another test that is good for peripheral neuropathies is the vibration test. And in this test we use one of those low-pitched vibrating tuning forks that I told you were not good for the Weber and Rhine test but are very good for the vibration uh, testing in the sensory neurological system. You would strike the tuning fork and place it on any bony prominence and the person should be able to feel the vibrations from the tuning fork. 
folks with neurological disorders, particularly um, peripheral neuropathies, will have trouble distinguishing the vibrations. Now again, you should do this with the patient's eyes closed and ask them to tell you where it is that they're feeling the uh, vibrations. Um, if, they c if the person's eyes are open and they can see you applying the tuning fork to a various uh, parts of the body, they're more likely oh. to give you a to tell you they can feel it when they really can't. So make sure their eyes are closed. You can also check for position sense. With that, you would move uh, an extremity or a finger or a toe um, in, in either up, down, left, or right position, and then ask the patient to tell you uh, where, their, where that uh, limb has been uh, positioned to. Again, you want to do this one with their eyes closed. Stereognosis and graphesthesia are two uh, techniques that you can use to test the sensitivity of the palms of the hand. The palms of the hand should be extraordinarily sensitive. So with stereognosis, you ask the patient to close their eyes and you place a familiar object in their hand. And with one hand only, they should be able to tell you what that object is. Some common objects that are good to use for stereognosis include keys, coins, um, paper clips, uh, batteries, small batteries, um, or uh, other kinds of small household objects that are easily uh, recognizable to everyone. Graphesthesia is the ability to uh, identify a number or a letter that's been traced into the palm of the hand. So with graphesthesia, you ask the patient to close their eyes and you uh, tell them you're going to write either a number or a letter in their hand and they should be able to tell you what you wrote. Um, you can use your finger, you can use a pen to uh, trace the uh, number into the skin. You can use the, the opposite end of the uh, deep tendon reflex hammer. Um, and remember that you should make the letter or number uh, so that it is right side up to the patient who's being assessed. So for example, if I were to trace a four into the hand of someone I'm examining, I need to make sure that the four is facing them rather than me so that they can read it. If the person is um, um, non-English speaking, or if they are illiterate, it may be difficult to do this. In that instance, you might be able to use shapes, and shapes work well with children also. The two-point discrimination test, I'm not going to hold you responsible for, but I do include it here just so that you'll know what it is. This slide shows um, pictures of some of these sensory tests. The first one is showing you the difference between the sharp and dull pain assessment. We're using a dull end and then a sharp end to, to test for the ability to determine where they're being touched and with what kind of a stimulus. Um, on the left um, right I'm sorry, the right top of the slide, there is the vibration uh, sense being tested with the tuning fork. You see we're using the low pitch tuning fork that has the, the resonator bulbs on the end of it. Um, that means that it will uh, um, vibrate at a low pitch and the whole tuning fork will actually vibrate. Putting that on any bony process, that they should be able to feel that vibration and tell you where it is. The finger placement test, you should show them here with the, um, we, I called it the body position test. The same thing, you're moving the, the either the finger or the toe, or you can move a whole leg or a whole arm, uh, up, down, left, or right, and the patient should be able to tell you what position you have placed it in. 
And then the last picture is just showing you light touch using a cotton ball. This slide is showing you uh, dermatomes. Dermatomes are areas of the body that are innervated by the various spinal nerves. Um, you see that we have eight cervical uh, spinal nerves, we have 12 thoracic spinal nerves, and we have um, five lumbar uh, spinal nerves. So what we do is um, those are responsible for innervating various um, sections of the body. Um, this is why when someone is a quadriplegic, we always want to know the level of the um, of the injury because using this a chart such as this you can predict the um, areas of dysfunction um, and quadriplegics who are, might be uh, have their injury at C7 you can see according to this chart they may they will probably still have um, some movement of the arms and shoulders although they may not have the fine um, motor movements of the lower arms um, so some quadriplegics do retain some movement of the upper extremities and this will help predict that. Also for folks that have uh, lower back pain um, or sciatica, you might have heard of folks who have a, a, a sciatic nerve uh, irritation where they end up getting pain in their thigh. This chart can also help predict where that might be. For example, if somebody has a herniated disc at um, L4 According to this chart, you will expect that they may have referred pain that runs down the back of their, of their buttocks and folds over to the front of their thighs and down into their calves. This would not be an abnormal pain um, response from someone who had a, uh, a herniation at L4. This slide talks about decorticate versus decerebrate positioning. Uh, both of these positions indicate uh, serious um, spinal uh, neurological um, injuries. Um, decorticate uh, is a, uh, and, and decorticate, the pictures are uh, actually opposite of the definitions, unfortunately, on this slide. But the decorticate positioning is actually B on here. And in decorticate positioning, you get an inward motion of the extremities. The hands and the arms move in toward the middle of the body, and the knees and feet move inward toward the thing. To remember this one, I, I always think about um, core, the K-O, the C-O-R in decorticate, um, is the Latin root for heart. And uh, if you speak French, you know that uh, when they talk about core um, in, the, in French, it means heart. So in this instance, decorticate means that everything is moving toward the heart, inward toward the heart. For decerebrate, um, which is an indication of um, uh, injury to the brainstem, whereas decorticate is indication of neurological, uh, lower spinal neurological tract injury. But in decerebrate, you get the opposite movement, where the extremities are, are uh, moving away from the midline of the body. The knees rotate out, and the ankles rotate out. Um, so far, we've talked about the uh, cranial nerves, the sensory uh, function, the cerebellar function, and now we're going to talk about the deep tendon reflexes as part of a neurological assessment. Um, the deep tendon reflexes test various spinal nerves to be sure that the tracks that lead back to the spinal column are intact. 
And spinal nerves are graded from 0 to 4 plus, with 2 plus being a normal um, reflex. 0 being no response, 1 is diminished, 2 is normal, 3 is brisker than, than normal, 4 is very brisk or hyperactive with clonus. Clonus is basically a charley horse. So if by using your reflex hammer, you introduce a stimulus to a muscle that causes a charley horse, then you have clonus. Um, and clonus is an abnormal finding. Okay. So hyperreflexia is a, a situation where you have an exaggerated reflex, and it can occur with um, upper motor neuron lesions. Hyporeflexia, or absence of reflexes, occurs with no lower motor neuron lesions. And then again, clonus is a set of jerky contractions of the muscle, um, basically a charley horse. There are five deep tendon reflexes that um, you are responsible for knowing. And the first one is the biceps uh, reflex. The biflex re biceps reflex um, is located in the inner arm in the antecubital area. Each one of these reflexes tests a muscle group um, as well as the nerve that innervates that muscle group. So what you're looking for when you're testing these is a contraction of the muscle group with a corresponding movement of the limb. So with the biceps, we are looking for a contraction in the biceps as well as what usually happens is you get movement of the lower arm as a result of uh, this involuntary contraction of the biceps. You, with the biceps uh, uh, reflex, you place your thumb right in the middle of the antecubital area of the inner arm. You tap your, th your thumb nail and you should see a contraction of the biceps muscle and a um, flexion of the lower arm. In order for uh, you to be able to elicit these deep tendon reflexes, the person needs to be relaxed, wet noodle relaxed. Um, so you need to keep an eye on their state of relaxation when you are doing these deep tendon reflexes. The next one in the upper extremities is the triceps. And the triceps um, reflex is located um, right above the acromion process uh, on the upper arm. Um, you would tap the tendon that covers the acromion process and connects um, those two muscle groups together. And what you should see is a contraction in the triceps muscle and a corresponding movement in the of extension in the um, lower arm. The brachioradialis is the third deep tendon reflex that's located on the upper extremities. For this, you want to go on the radial side of the lower arm. And to test these, you can do all three of these upper extremity testing with their arms resting lightly, palms up, in their lap. So you would find the radial pulse and then move your fingers, about two fingers up from the radial pulse. And using your reflex hammer, tap in that area. You should see a, a uh, contraction of the muscle of that inner, inner forearm and then their fingers are usually get a corresponding movement in the fingers. Um, there's, there's two reflexes, uh, the uh, deep tendon reflexes in the lower extremities. The first is the quadriceps. Now this is the one that everybody tends to call the patellar or the knee. Um, the correct name though is quadriceps, so please remember that. And it is because you're testing the quadriceps muscles. With this you would tap the tendon right below the patella 
and you should get a contraction of the quadriceps muscle which causes the lower leg to extend and it should swing forward. The Achilles um, reflex is behind the is the is the tendon that's behind the heel. So you would uh, probably need to kneel down um, at the uh, if the person is sitting upright and you want to support the bottom of their foot. The reason being because uh, the expected motion here when you tap the Achilles tendon um, is that the foot should dorsiflex um, and when a foot dorsiflex the toes point down toward the floor. If the foot is already pointing all the way down toward the floor because their leg is relaxed, then you won't see the uh, results that you need in order to assess the Achilles tendon. So you want to lightly support the foot with with your with your hand in order to um, give the give the um, so that the foot can actually do a little bit dorsiflexing. So you would again tap that that Achilles tendon right behind um, the uh, the ankle and look for dorsiflexion of the foot. For any of these uh, reflexes, it doesn't matter what side of the reflex hammer you use um, as, long as, you're, as long as you are tapping in the correct area. This slide shows uh, the five deep tendon reflexes as well as the Babinski reflex. The first one is showing you the biceps reflex. You can see that the, per the examiner has their thumb in the antecubital spot and is uh, tapping their own um, their own thumbnail in order to elicit that that um, uh, response from the biceps muscle. Uh, the second one across the top is the triceps, and you see that the, the in this instance the examiner is supporting the arm so that it hangs free, and is then uh, using the hammer uh, right above the acromion uh, process. Uh, underneath the triceps muscle to uh, tap to elicit contraction of the triceps. The third one across the top there is the brachioradialis. Now you see the position that the hand is in here where you've got the arm uh, resting in the lap and the hand uh, resting with palms up. You can actually do the biceps, triceps, and brachioradialis from this same position. You can, you know, you don't have to move the arm out of this position and it actually do it, keeping it this way actually helps the patient to remain relaxed. The first slide on the bottom here is of the quadriceps um, uh, deep tendon reflex. Um, you see that the examiner here has her hand behind the knee. That's not necessarily that's not necessary. What you but what you do need is you need to have the patient's knee leg dangling free. Um, you, it shouldn't be uh, right up against the exam table or the bed. So you want to move them a little bit closer to the edge of the table or the bed so that their leg is hanging uh, free. Um, the, la the middle one here is, is the Achilles. You see that, that the examiner is supporting the foot and tapping on the, at the, on the Achilles tendon with the hammer and a dorsiflexion should occur. In other words, the, the toes of the foot should press against that examiner's arm. And then the last is the Babinski. The Babinski uh, is a, a reflex. It's actually a superficial reflex um, where you stroke up along the uh, sole of the foot, uh, starting at the heel and then moving uh, across the ball of the foot. Um, and uh, in an adult, your uh, toes should curl and in a child, the toes should fan. This slide is showing um, 
the correct way to document your reflexes. This is a very common way to document your deep tendon reflexes. You can either list them out or you can do them on the stick figure guy here. Um, and you see, remember that they're graded from 0 to 4. So what they've done here is they've used pluses to indicate um, where where the uh, uh, where they tested and what the results were. So looking at the top um, stick man that's labeled normal, you can see that this person had a 2 plus um, brachioradialis, a, a 2 plus um, um, biceps and triceps, has a 2 plus patellar, uh, I'm sorry, quadriceps, and a 2 plus uh, Achilles. They've also done the abdominal reflex here on this here. Down at the bottom, you can see where they've done some abnormals, um, and they've shown some four pluses in the lower extremities and zeros for the superficial abdominal. Some more of those superficial reflexes. There's an abdominal reflex where you basically tickle the uh, abdomen. You stroke uh, the abdomen from the flank toward the umbilicus, and you should get a tensing of the, of the muscles on that side that shift the umbilicus. The chromastic reflex we talked about when we did the uh, male genitalia assessment, and that's where you stroke the inner thigh of a male, uh, and that should result in an elevation of the testicle on that side. <coughs> and again, the Babinski uh, is another superficial that uh, you do on the bottom of the foot. Remember that when we talk about the toes curling or fanning in adults or children, we're, we're basically talking about the big toe. It's the one that we're the most interested in. Uh, we worry what the great toe does. The, the smaller toes may do something completely different, but it's the great toe that we're really worried about. As part of the neurological assessment, you also want to examine a person's uh, cognitive function uh, and their uh, mental status. So as part of that, you want to uh, investigate their level of consciousness, their language skills, their mood and affect, their orientation, their attention span, their memory, their ab abstract reasoning abilities, their thought processes, their thought content, and their perceptions. Now, what um, very seldom do I end up doing an isolated mental status exam on a lot of my patients because um, what I what I usually find is that I uh, by the time I've done my um, history on these folks I have a, an excellent idea as to all of these categories if I'm doing my own history which um, is the optimal way to do a history and physical I will have asked them a variety of questions that will that will test their ability, their short and long-term memory, their abstract reasoning skills, their appropriateness of thought, their memory, their attention span, their level of orientation, and I should have really conducted that assessment in you know during the history just by the just by the nature of of actually doing a history with the patient. Um, if they're confused, disoriented, those things become quite obvious very early on. You also want to ask um, and investigate um, their illness or health problems, uh, their current medications or other side effects that can have a, a uh, influence on their mental status, their educational background, their usual behavior. Um, sometimes folks get them into the hospital or they'll have a family member that comes in with them that says, I know they seem okay, but this just isn't my mom or just isn't my dad. She's not acting right. Um, 
and take those reports seriously. Um, you want to ask about their stress level because stress levels can severely uh, limit a person's ability to critically think and to reason um, well. Uh, uh, their uh, sleep habits, lack of sleep can, can also um, contribute to all kinds of, of issues, including uh, c confusion. And then their drug and alcohol use. When assessing level of consciousness, um, there are different ways to um, describe levels of consciousness, um, and coma shouldn't be one of them anymore. We shouldn't be using the words coma or semi-comatose anymore when we are describing a patient. Uh, we should stick to this. These, this list is pretty well approved by the um, uh, Neurological Association. Um, alert we're aware of is the awake alert and oriented easily arousable. Um, oriented to time, place, and person. Lethargic is uh, sometimes also called somnolent. A lethargic person is, is um, maybe a little difficult to arouse. They're drowsy. Their thinking might be slow, but they are not disoriented. They are oriented. They do make appropriate responses. They're just slow to make the responses, and they may fall back asleep on you during an assessment. An obtunded person sleeps most of the time, and they're confused when they are aroused. Their speech can or is often uh, mumbled. Um, a stupor, so when someone's in a stupor, um, they respond only to vigorous shaking or painful stimuli, um, and they're nonverbal usually except for moans and groans. An unresponsive person is completely unconscious. There's no response to, no response to pain. Um, delirium is a state where a person is awake, but they're extremely confused. Uh, this can happen especially at night with that whole sundowners syndrome. They may be violent. They may have inco incoherent speech. This is different from a confused individual because um, a confused individual um, is not necessarily violent um, or um, or uh, have problems with their speech patterns. And, and confusion may increase at night, but it doesn't go away during the day. Like delirium oftentimes goes away during the day. When you're assessing a level of consciousness, you want to first ask them their name. If there's no response, you know, call them a little louder. If they still don't respond, call their name and lightly touch them. If you still don't get anything, call their name and shake the shoulder. If there's no response, you can shake them a little higher, harder. If there's still no response, then you need to apply pain to see if you can get a response from them. Now, in the old days, I, w I was taught to pinch nipples and stick them with safety pins. Please don't do that anymore. If you see anybody doing that, don't do that. That's mean. There are much more humane ways available to check for their uh, pain response. Um, one is a sternal rub. Take your uh, hand, put it in a nice tight fist, then take your knuckles and rub them pretty deeply into the uh, sternum. Um, it's uncomfortable. People don't like it. Um, you can also take your thumb and push up on the bridge of the eyebrow. Um, that's, again, uncomfortable, and uh, that will often elicit a response. Um, you can lightly pinch the sternum or the chest area, but please don't twist or pinch their nipples. You can also try shining a light into their eyes to see if they respond to that. And um, one of the deepest levels of unconsciousness uh, is someone that will only that uh, that will only respond to uh, suctioning, in which case you are basically uh, uh, inciting their gag reflex. If they're not responding even to suctioning, then we've got quite a deep level of um, of 
unconsciousness um, on this individual. Um, for orientation, you again would check for time, place, and person. Check their attention span. Some places advise giving them, giving the patient a uh, series of um, three to five um, numbers to remember at the beginning of this of the history, and then asking them about it again at the end of the physical assessment. Um, and that is a fine technique, but you can also get a good idea about their attention span just by talking to them throughout the history and physical process. Um, folks' recent memory is often impaired when they have Alzheimer's disease, and remote memory is often intact in individuals even when they're acutely confused. Um, so, um, and that, that is uh, actually a normal part of aging. As we get uh, older, our short-term memory um, is not quite as uh, sharp as it once was, but most of our long-term memory stays uh, pretty well intact. You also want to check their judgment um, and determine whether or not they need assistance in, uh, with their safety needs as a result of any problems with their um, thought processes. So you also, in this slide, we talk about their thought processes and assessing those. You want to be sure that their thoughts are logical and orderly, that they're, subject, they're appropriate to the subject that you're on, and that they're logical. Um, you want to ask or, or uh, indicate how they perceive the world around them. Uh, for example, are they paranoid? Do they feel that everyone's out to get them? Are they fatalistic, feeling that there's no hope in doing anything about maybe their current health situation because they're just going to die anyway? Um, or do they, you know, do they perceive that they are, uh, that they have support, that they have um, uh, help out there and in the uh, in the outside community? You also want to screen for um, suicidal thoughts especially if they're depressed. Um, you need to ask them straight out, have you ever felt like hurting yourself? Um, and if they say yes, then you want to explore that. Um, you want to determine whether or not they have a plan, if they've ever decided how they would do this. Um, if they've decided how they would do it, then that is a much more uh, serious uh, instance for um, placing them on suicide precautions. Um, they've, if they've put a lot of thought into it that way, then um, they may have the ability to, um, to actually carry it out. Um, one of the things, too, that to, to keep in mind with folks who are severely depressed, um, when folks are severely, severely depressed, they often don't have the physical and emotional energy to carry out a suicide plan. But as they start to get better, either, on, um, uh, either with therapy or with hospitalization or with uh, medications, um, sometimes uh, as they get better, they become more of a suicidal risk because they all of a sudden now have the, the physical and emotional strength to carry out these plans. So sometimes as they get better, you, s you have to watch them even more closely and make sure that you are um, aware of where their head is as far as these thoughts of suicide. If someone is bipolar or has uh, schizophrenia or um, has other kinds of, uh, of psychiatric, uh, serious psychiatric disorders, um, suicide, in suicide intentions um, need to be assessed on a regular basis. Um, some age-specific considerations. Um, obviously, infants and children is going to be uh, dif more difficult to assess their neurological system because of their lack of verbal skills, and they may not be able to follow your instructions. Um, so you may just have to use some really keen ob observations. Um, 
remember that teens' appearances are often bizarre. Sometimes teens do that on purpose. Um, so even though you might think they're inappropriate, um, you know, that maybe there's some thought processes that aren't quite right. Um, teen, it's developmentally appropriate for teens to try out different personas. That's why there's so many goth teens or, um, um, you know, oh, t you know, they get into all different kinds of um, uh, personas that they try out to find out which one they like the best and which one seems to suit their themselves. It, it, that's developmentally appropriate as a teenager. Sometimes, though, teens, um, you know, one of the personas they come up with is uh, the misfit um, or the uh, the sullen teen or the violent teen, in which case, you know, those may cause, uh, cause some uh, influences on their health, uh, healthcare status, and on you. Um, so you need to be careful with that. But try to um, determine whether or not these bizarre behaviors are part of their development or whether they actually are inappropriate. Um, the elderly may be forgetful or slow to answer, so be sure to give them adequate time to respond to your questions. In infants, um, it's really tough to do their cranial nerves, but um, this slide gives you some suggestions on how to uh, assess those cranial nerves in infants, and I'll let you read those on your own for those of you that have uh, an interest in learning how to assess the cranial nerves of, of infants. Okay. Um, you also, again, want to observe uh, them for symmetrical motions. Um, you want to do a Denver developmental assessment on them whenever you can, and there's a chapter in your book when we get uh, toward the end of the semester that talks about uh, assessing children that does contain the Denver developmental tool that you can use in the future. Um, there are some infant reflexes that I'll let you um, read on your own, um, and they disappear at various uh, ages. So if you're assessing infants, you want to be aware of these reflexes and uh, when you should expect to see them and when you should expect to have seen that they've extinguished. Remember that the, the, the Babinski, the, the toes fan instead of curl, and um, the moral reflex is that startle reflex um, that they should have up until about four months old. Um, in the, when you're assessing um, children, <coughs> uh, remember that the gait of children uh, is different from an adult until they're about um, five or six years old. Toddlers have a very broad gait like a duck, a little duck walk gait. Um, uh, and then uh, as they get to be about four, five, six years old, their gait starts to be more uh, adult-like. Deep tendon reflexes are often hard to assess in a child because they often can't cooperate. They don't know what you're doing, and they don't they don't like the fact that they're being hit with the hammer, um, even though it, the hammer doesn't hurt. It's a rubber hammer, so it's sometimes it's very difficult to do deep tendon reflexes on children. In the elderly, their their responses are often slower. Their taste of uh, their senses of taste and smell may decrease as part of normal aging. They may develop these senile tremors, which can occur in the head, face, uh, and tongue, and in the hands, um, that are not Parkinson's. They're just uh, senile tremors. Any of you that remember Katherine Hepburn, um, remember how her head bobbed um, as she was uh, as she got older? Those were senile tremors. Um, the difference between a senile tremor and a tremors of Parkinson's is that Parkinson's patients generally don't have the tremors until they try to do uh, an activity. At rest, they generally don't have the, the, those, those tremors. Somebody with senile tremors has them at rest. 
um, and they don't increase or decrease when they're um, doing when they're doing a purposeful movement, unlike they do in Parkinson's disease. Um, the gait can change as we get older; it can become slow and deliberate, can become more shuffling. Um, the Achilles uh, tendon reflex is often um, absent after about age 65 because of peripheral uh, um, vascular um, issues. Um, the DVTs often become less uh, less um, brisk, um, and the abdominal reflex usually disappears. Okay, our practice exam question. In report, the previous nurse told you that Mr. Jones was alert and oriented times three. While assessing Mr. Jones, you find him to be slow but uh, to respond, but mostly appropriate. His speech is slurred, and he often falls asleep during your assessment. How would you describe Mr. Jones' mental status? Is it A, he's alert and oriented, but somewhat slow? B, he's obtunded? C, he's alert, but not oriented? Or D, he is oriented, but not alert? Now, in this instance, the correct answer is going to be D. Um, he is uh, alert, but not, um, I, I'm sorry, he's oriented, but not alert. Okay. Um, and I didn't purposely didn't put lethargic in here. Lethargic would have been the most appropriate term on the list that we had. Um, but I wanted to make sure that you knew what lethargic was. So in somebody who's uh, a lethargic, they're oriented, but they're not alert. They often fall asleep on you, and you have to wake them back up again a lot when you're trying to do your assessment. So that's the end of our neurological assessment. Um, remember that I will post this as a slidecast and as a podcast, and that you can subscribe to the podcast if you care to um, by clicking on the subscribe buttons on the podcast page so that you can listen to it on your computer or on an MP3 player or burn it to a CD. If you have any questions about any of the material in here, please don't hesitate to give me a call. Um, this will be the last slide cast for this course. Uh, from here on out, the uh, material is uh, self-explanatory in the modules. And um, there's videos for each of the modules, but there will be no more slide casts. So if you have any questions about any of the material in the future modules, you can also give me a, a phone call. I'll be happy to speak with you.